0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The
1: title of the book, Sanctuary, and the author is Nancy Julian, and the author is N.E. Julian, and Nancy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Nancy.
2: Hello, how are you?
1: Well, this is a very intense novel about uh, the military love that you have uh, i guess had for a long time you've been interested in in the military you've also been interested in the people that are involved correct
2: yes that's right um i was a history major in college i've always loved history and i for some reason always had an odd fascination with the military um i think maybe because I, i'm a baby boomer and my Folks uh, were participated in World War II, and then I had a brother-in-law who went to Vietnam, and um, it just always has fascinated me. And so I've done a lot of reading about about the Army and the other branches of the service. Um, so this my book draws on my interest in history and the military, and you know, love stories kind of ties everything together.
1: So in general, before we go into details, what is your book about?
2: Uh, My book is about um, basically two kind of emotionally wounded people who meet under difficult circumstances, and they, they try to form a marriage. It's about overcoming trauma and finding yourself.
1: And you take us into the Balkan Civil Wars, right, of the 1990s?
2: Uh, yes, it's uh, set in uh, an unnamed country in the former Yugoslavia, and it's set in 1997 uh, when there actually wasn't a full-scale war going on. Um, but most of the incidents in the books are in the book rather, it, are drawn on uh, actual incidents that occurred during either the Bosnian War or the Kosovo war.
1: Why did you choose those conflicts?
2: Um, I wanted to write something about the military, but I didn't want to write about the current uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, For one thing, because the cultures in those countries are just so foreign to me, Um, whereas the wars in Bosnia um, and the other Yugoslavian countries were in a European country where the culture was more familiar And I wanted to set it in a military setting because that's how I set it up for my two characters to meet originally. Uh, The principal male character, Major Ed Russell, rescues the principal female um, character, a girl named Leah, who is a refugee. And that's that's how they meet in the context of this war.
1: And this book is really a character of, what's the words I'm looking for? I mean, there's so much action-packed violence and everything in so many books and movies, but you really focused on the characters and, and what they were going through and how they dealt with it and looking for love and trying to figure out what's going on in their lives.
2: Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, there, there's action in the book as a backdrop especially in the, the first third of the book, which takes place in the Balkans, you know, you get an, an indication of um, the fact that this is a war and that there are war crimes going on and that there's a lot of violence. But as a counterweight to that, um, Leah and the Major um, are headquartered in um, what used to be an estate that Russell had uh, confiscated from a local militia leader. So they're kind of in this island of peace and security surrounded by all of uh, this violence and conflict. Um, and then when they come to the United States, um, of course, they're in a much more peaceful and secure situation. So that's when they really try to start building their relationship.
1: But it starts out not as love.
2: No, not at all. Uh, when it starts out, neither one of them is interested in a relationship. Russell rescues this young girl. Um, she's been abandoned by her parents, and she spent months on the road as a refugee. And she actually meets him because she collapses at a checkpoint manned by his soldiers. She has pneumonia. And Russell saves her life by giving her medical treatment. And when the book opens, she is in his office, um, in his headquarters, and he's asking her what's she going to do now that she's well, and she says she wants to go to, um, she's trying to find her family, and he says, you know, look, winter's coming, oh, you need some place to stay. Nobody around here is going to take you in, and you can't wander around on your own. So he makes her an offer. If she'll stay with him and work as his interpreter, um, he'll give her shelter if she'll be his mistress. So basically, um, it's a very cynical arrangement. He wants sex, and she needs shelter. And that is originally all that either one of them is is looking for.
1: And how old are these two?
2: Okay, Russell is supposed to be 36 when the book opens. He's a major in the U.S. Army. And Leah is um, 19, a month or so away from her 20th birthday.
1: Now, you talk about them being two wounded people. Now, tell us about Russell. Why is he wounded?
2: Uh, Before the book opened, um, his wife divorced him. Uh, She didn't like being an officer's wife. Uh, She didn't like the military life, so she started uh, running around on him. So he had to go through the humiliation of her having an affair and then divorcing him. And then she got custody of their son, and he basically lost everything in the divorce. Um, All he's got left is the Army. He's very lonely. He drinks heavily. And uh, if it weren't for the structure the Army provides him, he would probably just fall apart.
1: Is that why he maintains this gruff uh, personality, just to hide behind it?
2: Uh, To some extent. um,
1: Or is that just part of his position in the Army that he feels he has to be that way?
2: Well, I mean, he's an Army officer. You know, he's used to being tough, commanding, giving orders, being obeyed. Uh, He lives in a physically challenging environment. And so there's that. And being kind of just a gruff, no-nonsense person is also part of his basic personality but also he hides behind it uh, to hide the fact that he is so lonely.
1: And is that the way he treats Leah?
2: Um, no, from the outset, he uh, he's good to her. Yeah, he's kind to her. Um, he gives, her, or she gives him something of what he's been looking for. He actually falls in love with her almost instantly uh, because she's, an attractive young girl, and he feels protective toward her, and she's very intelligent. And um, so he falls in love with her, but she actually does not fall in love with him. She's very weary and cynical uh, because her parents had abandoned her, and uh, they left her to fend for themselves. They, they ran off with the refugees, and she was left uh, at the age of 19 to cope in the middle of a war. So uh, even though she's very self-reliant, she's also been devastated by what her parents did to her. So she's almost completely unable to trust anybody. And so she doesn't trust Russell. She's grateful to the fact that he saved her life and that, um, you know, that he's being nice to her. Uh, But she deliberately tries not to develop any feelings for him because she thinks, you know, in a couple of months, He'll be gone and she'll be back on the road and what's the point
1: so what changes this relationship
2: well while they're still in the Balkans um, you know leah is is getting more and more attached to the to the major even though she's fighting it and he of course is falling more and more in love with her um, but then there is a situation where um I guess one of the villains of the book is a man named Captain Harper. From the beginning, he um, he has disliked and resented Leah. He's a very brutal man. His, he lets his troops uh, abuse the local citizens. He's a misogynist. Uh, anyway, um, Leah has several run-ins with him, and then finally he's been arrested because the Major found out that he was... Um, illegally selling U.S. humanitarian supplies to the civilians he was supposed to be giving them to. So anyway, he comes out of house arrest, and he beats Leah up, and he tries to attack her. And that's kind of like the final straw. Uh, She just becomes extremely depressed, and she just can't hold off the major anymore. She admits that she needs him. And uh, two months later, they get married.
1: Now, this, this book also goes into some, you know, even though we we just mentioned that it's not filled with uh, violence and just action-packed, but there are also some graphic, I guess, scenes of war that you've included. Some uh, very, uh, obviously, very brutal in, in uh, I know, the one scene where the family, the Muslim couple and their children uh, talk about why you did that.
2: Uh, It was to illustrate the brutality of the Balkan conflict. Uh, The wars in the former Yugoslavia were the worst since World War II. Uh, They've resulted in a lot of uh, war crimes trials that are still going on. Uh, There were terrible atrocities against uh, the civilian populations, and I put that scene where that you just mentioned, where a young Muslim couple is murdered and their children are murdered, and Russell and his men come across uh, the bodies one day when they're out on patrol. I put that scene in there as just to kind of illustrate that the terrible situation um, going on during the war and also to illustrate what the, the peacekeepers are having to deal with. They're in this country where the local populations just absolutely hate each other.
1: The Serbs and the Muslims. The
2: Serbs and the Muslims, exactly. And the American troops every day have to go out and try to keep these people from killing each other.
1: And the young husband here is crucified.
2: Uh, Yes. And apparently uh, terrible atrocities like that uh, did happen. Um, It was just... uh, incredibly cruel. I mean, I didn't want to put a lot of that in the book because it was just a backdrop to the story of the relationship between Russell and Leah, but I I did think that there should be some of that information because that's what was going on, and that's what the American troops and the other uh, United Nations peacekeeping troops were having to deal with.
1: Now, you take them out of the Civil War, and you take them to Northern California. Now, what? why did you take them there?
2: Well, they get married, as I said, and Russell's tour in uh, the Balkans, and so when they come back to the United States, he takes Leah on a delayed honeymoon to Northern California because it turns out that is where he grew up. And um, I wanted the, the beauty of Northern California and the peacefulness and the safety to be a, just a complete contrast to... Um, the terrible situations in the country they had just left, and it is—it's just—it's a wonderful time for both of them, and it's on their honeymoon that Leah starts falling in love with her husband.
1: And then they're off to Pennsylvania.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> back back
1: home, uh, so to speak. That's where you're from, right? <laughs> yes, I live in
2: Pennsylvania, which is why I, I made up an army fort called Fort Franklin um, that I mentally situated, about an hour's drive away from uh, Philadelphia, mainly because I'm familiar with the area. Um, But this is where they are stationed. Uh, Russell takes a new posting as commanding officer of a training battalion, and Leah goes with him, and that's where she really learns about the Army life for the first time. Uh, you know, they're living on base. They're dealing with the Army hierarchy and with all the social restrictions. And uh, this is where she really has to decide if she can make it as an officer's wife.
1: You talk about this book, uh, obviously, with very intense scenes and also very heavy issues. But you say you don't want this book just to be depressing or a downer. What What is it about the book that... That is the uh, is the inspiration of the book.
2: Um, basically, it's that people can overcome trauma. Um, there's been a lot of trauma in my own life. Uh, both of my parents were mentally ill, and so you know I know a lot about overcoming it. And I guess that's the real um, message of the book: is that no matter what you've been through. People can overcome it, and they can find themselves, and they can come out on the other side, and they can, um, well, one of the issues in the last third of the book is whether Leah is going to stay completely closed off and protect herself emotionally so she won't feel much, or whether she's going to be open to loving and trusting her husband and other people, and she finally decides she's going to be open, and that's, that's one of the messages I have, that, you know, people don't have to shut down emotionally.
1: So both of them have learned to open up.
2: Uh, yeah, they have. Russell didn't need to learn it as much as Leah because he was, he was looking for love. Um, that's one way that this book is different from a normal or an ordinary love story. Because in most love stories, it's the emotionally closed-off man who is persuaded by the woman to open up, whereas in this book, it's Russell who is open to love, and he persuades the um, the very cynical, tough young girl who only relies on herself to open up to him. But yeah, they both, um, they both find that they can overcome their past traumas, and they can um, start a new life, and find family and connections.
1: Nancy, tell us how to get your book.
2: You can go to the iUniverse website, or it is available at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Those are the principal um, places. I'm assuming it's probably also available at uh, Borders.com.
1: And you have a website.
2: Yes, I do. It's uh, NEJulian.com
1: with more information there about the book and you probably can order the book there as well.
2: Uh, no, the book will refer you to iUniverse or Amazon or Bn.com but um, it's not on there now but I am going to put the first chapter of the book online. so anybody who wants more information can read the first chapter and get an idea of uh, what the characters are like and you know just how it's going how things are going to go in the novel.
1: Well, Nancy, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio.
2: Well, I certainly appreciate your uh, giving me the chance to promote my book. Thank you so much.
1: That was N.E. Julian. She is the author of her book, Sanctuary.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
3: Texas, Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices, toll free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.MealsOnWheelsEastTexas.org. Again, toll free at one 800 451 or visit us on the web at www.MealsOnWheelsEastTexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Ever wondered how you can make a difference in someone's life when you don't have a lot of time or money to give? Well, the East Texas Crisis Center and Tyler Ford have partnered in a way that helps everyone. For just $10, you can win a limited edition autographed Shelby GT Mustang that has been donated to the Crisis Center by Tyler Ford. All the money stays right here in East Texas and helps victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. To get your ticket, call 903-579-2500. That's 903-579-2500.
4: Saturdays on TogiNap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio for the cutting edge.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book Manager Mechanics Tips and Advice for First Time Managers. And the author is Eric Bloom. And Eric joins us now on iUniverse Radio.
5: Hello, Eric. Hi, Steve. How are you?
1: Well, interesting title, Manager Mechanics. It certainly conjures up there's a system here. There are skills you have to learn, right?
5: Yes, there are. In fact, where, it came, where the name came from was two things, one of which is what I learned through my career, that uh, is that management is as much an art as it is a science. And so I wanted to have something in there. Also, my background is technical and software development, so the idea of having something mechanics or something along that line made sense. The truth is how I really ended up with the name was I wanted the name of the book to be the same as the website, namely managermechanics.com. Uh, so what I did was is that I actually went through the web and tried to find a name that made sense, uh, found a, a URL that was open, and then named the book after the URL.
1: Good planning. I think that's very very well thought through now. There's a lot of books out there, obviously, on management. Why write another book?
5: Well, I, I purposely tried to make mine different in a few ways, one of which is is rather than being somewhat sort of academic or research in nature, it's very mentoring-oriented. It has things in there like this is why um, you don't want to make the human resources person mad. Or when you're, if you're expecting, in the, uh, like in budgeting, uh, if, you're, if you're doing next year's budget, why, if you plan on going for 10 trips, you should budget 12, because there's always a trip you didn't know about or prices may go up, etc. So what I've really tried to do is produce the book from a mentoring perspective.
1: So Secondly, real, oh, no, sorry. just real basics then, very, very basics, and yes. probably things that maybe most people wouldn't think about.
5: Yes, or they're things that they will eventually learn through years of experience. Uh, another thing is is I wanted to make the book fun. You know, I wanted it to be ser- you know, serious in regard to the material that's in it. I wanted it to be informative. But I wanted it to be a quick read, and I wanted it to have a little bit of enjoyment in it.
1: Well, uh, that that certainly, I'm sure, is not like most management books.
5: I, I agree, which is part of the reason that I, I want, you know, it's the nature of my personality to want to have a little bit of fun within the day as well as... Uh, um, within the material that I write. Uh, and a specific example of that is, which is actually a, a very serious topic, which is the, uh, the seven types of difficult employees, that uh, my feeling was is at first if I categorize them, if you know why this person is difficult, then it makes it easier to find a solution by which you can help that person or put them in the straight and narrow, so to speak. But the names of the categorizations are loosely named after the seven dwarfs. It's uh, sleazy, grumpy, lazy, brainy, tardy, dummy, and troubled.
1: Well, that kind of sums up everybody, I guess, (laughs) that are in that category, huh?
5: Absolutely. And what i found when I've used that within the business environment, based, you know, uh, just from my management experience, as well as when dealing with people, is by putting a little bit of fun and just naming the topics in a fun way, what it does is it makes a very difficult topic to discuss, a little bit easier to bring across, and as a result of that, has very positive, um, very positive business feelings associated.
1: It always amazes me in the business community, you find someone who knows how to do their job real well within a certain industry, within a certain department, and suddenly that person is then picked to be a manager with no training whatsoever.
5: Absolutely, that's the case. Most people become managers because they're very qualified individual contributors. And then uh, take, for example, uh, take, for example, myself, as I went to school to be uh, an accountant and then uh, eventually a technologist, a software developer. And then one day they came to me and they said, "Gee, or effectively said, uh, "Gee, you've done such a good job sitting in front of a computer all day and uh, and talking to it and writing software." That we're going to move you to a manager's role, a position you didn't go to school for, and quite frankly, you have no training in.
1: <laughs> but we know you'll be a success. <laughs>
5: Absolutely. In fact, there are statistics done by various universities and studies that almost 50% of first-time managers fail, Right. which was one of the reasons I wanted to put this book forward.
1: Now, in, in your chapter one, you say, have kids? You have all the management training you need. Now, t- talk about that interesting uh, phenomenon.
5: How that came about, it was actually, I was speaking to, uh, I had, over the course of my career, I have promoted many people to be first-time managers. And there was this one woman who was working for me. Actually, she had three adorable little kids. And whereas she was extremely knowledgeable and competent, as an individual contributor, she was very nervous that she'd never managed people and so on. So uh, what I did was I basically looked up, I saw the picture of her kids. I have kids myself, they're now grown, but I I said to her exactly that. I said, hey, you know what, you have kids, you have management experience, that there are many things that tie back and forth. You try to minimize the risks that people take within the office place. You tell your kids not to run with scissors you try to make a, uh, a sound work environment you try to make a nice home environment you know things along that line paralleled actually quite well and i didn't come up with that initially with the idea of writing a book around it i initially came up with the idea and truly wanting to help this person become a, a qualified and uh... successful manager
1: And the. Obviously, the kids at home know that mom cares, and that's a very important part, and it's one of your, uh, your, one of your uh, segments in your chapter about people have to feel that you care.
5: Absolutely. You know, I've seen cases, and, you know, I'm sure that all of us have had different types of managers. I've had managers that have truly cared about their staff, you know, where I was the employee, managers where they could care less. And I learned as much from the good managers that I've had over the years as I've had from the bad managers, you know, on things that I should do or, conversely, things that I should not do when I, uh, as a manager myself.
1: Now, what about managers live in fish tanks?
5: <laughs> it's an interesting analogy. But basically what that means, and if you think about it, from managers that you've had over the years, is once you're in a management role, the people working for you, tend to look at you differently. They'll listen and they'll analyze things that you say. Uh, for example, let's say that you and I were peers, and uh, I would, say, and I would uh, see you do something and would say, uh, uh, boy, if you, know, you were reporting to me, I'd fire you if you did that. Ha, 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 let's go out for a beer. And then three years later, say I've been promoted or been promoted to one or two levels above you. If I said exactly those same words, is that you, would, you wouldn't be taking it totally as a joke. You'd say, gee, did he really mean that? Was that a warning? And you'd be analyzing and reanalyzing and reanalyzing the conversation. So, as a result, is that um, what that means is as people look at fish tanks and are continually looking at the fish and seeing what they're doing, is that people are continually looking, those, looking at those above them in their management structure, deciding if they're doing well, if they're doing poorly. Uh, if, someone, if the manager's door is shut a lot, does that mean that there's going to be layoffs, or, or is he taking a nap? But you're analyzed more carefully from your staff than from your peers. So therefore, you have to be very careful in what you say and how you say it. You know, you, you can't be quite as jovial on certain types of jokes that you say. Innuendos uh, could be taken much more diff- uh, differently, and if they're the wrong type of innuendo, it could actually get you in professional or legal trouble.
1: You seem to get always more out of people if they trust you.
5: Absolutely. And uh, what I found as a manager, and let me also, also say where this has come from, is this is the type of advice that's in the book. It's all personal knowledge that some I learned through mentors of mine, some I learned from by making mistakes, etc. But from a trust perspective, what I've learned is trust really has to start at the manager toward his staff. Is that you have to show and be willing to trust the people that work for you. You have to make it very plain that you don't tolerate um, dishonesty within the group, whether that dishonesty is to you, to a peer, or to one of your clients. Because in the long run, uh, it can really hurt you professionally, as well as it can be, uh, you know, cause ill for the company.
1: One of your sections is titled "The Rule of No Surprises." <laughs>
5: Like that one, Uh, that where that one came from was many years ago. Uh, A manager of mine said this to me. He said, "You know what? If it's not my birthday, I don't want to be surprised. If you're surprised in the office, it's usually not a good thing." Um, What I've learned over time is two things. One is is that bad news tends not to get better with time, and that most good companies, if there is a problem, if that problem is caught early it's much easier to deal with and it's much easier to correct. The biggest problems that happen in firms is where there's an issue that isn't raised to senior management or isn't effectively addressed early enough, and then it becomes a major problem. So therefore, what this really means is that um, if you're having a problem in your department or if you have an issue, is raise that issue to your manager sooner rather than later because it's in his or her best interest that that issue is solved also, because you work for that person, and at the end of the day, it's their group as well as yours.
1: Here's a really complex of uh, advice that you're giving in this section, and it's very serious. How to discipline a staff member?
5: You know, is that some people, as a manager, there are, you know, it's wonderful when things go well, but there are times when people need to be disciplined, and it may be for various reasons. Uh, Sometimes they don't know what they're doing wrong. I'm a huge believer in constructive criticism, namely that being if someone's doing something wrong in your group, tell them, but tell them in a constructive manner. So uh, when dealing with um, uh, with disciplining an employee, I usually start there with, hey, do you really understand that what you're doing is wrong? And then from there, you begin to move it forward. You need to put a plan together on how to correct it. And then if it just becomes major issues or major difficulties, then particularly as a first-time manager, you should bring in your management and if need be human resources.
1: Here's a very timely bit of advice in a section called Knowing What Not to Send in an Email. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yes, is that um, that one, you know, it's funny. Every so often you, you hear that people do this is you know my advice is that never write anything in an email and by the way that goes for voicemails also uh... in these days it could be twitter or things that go on your uh... your facebook or linkedin page Is never write anything down or have anything recorded that you wouldn't want your spouse your kids your mother and uh... you know or anyone else to see because once you write an email and you forward that who that's forwarded to is out of your control
1: now, we talk about the hiring process. Obviously, it's a very in-depth, comprehensive kind of experience for both you and the person being interviewed. But what are some, just some key key tips could you give the first-time manager?
5: Well, what I'd say is that, interestingly enough, in most cases, the hardest part of the hiring process is getting permission to hire, the, uh, you know, the interview processes and all of that, th- those you're assisted through human resources. And quite frankly, most human resources organizations are excellent at providing interview tips in working with headhunters or through their own devices to find people to interview. But um, getting the initial justification to hire additional persons, I wouldn't say you're on your own, but I would say it's more, of, um, it's more up to you. Um, so things like if you know that you want to hire two people next year, make sure that you put them in the budget for that year. The reason is is because it's much easier to justify a wreck that's already been included in the budget as opposed to one that is an unplanned expense.
1: Now, laying people off is always a traumatic experience for both parties. What's the best way to handle that?
5: Well, let me begin by saying I have the voice of experience on that from both sides. I've been in the position where I've laid people off, and I've been in the position where I've been laid off myself. And what I'll say is that it's an, it's an agonizing and difficult situation on both sides of the coin. But I would say that the best advice that I could provide here, in the assumption here, of course, of being the manager and the one deciding first who to be laid off and then actually doing the laying off, is that when you make the decision on who to lay off as the manager... It's really your fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for the company. If it's a friend that's working for you and from the, your best judgment as a manager, that's the best person to be laid off, then you have to do that. You know, it sounds a little heartless, but the truth is, is that, again, as the manager, you have to do what's right for the company. The second piece of it is, is when you lay someone off, is that you should do it with the utmost respect, and you should also do whatever is possible. To try to make it easier for that person in landing a new position, if you think that they would be worthy of uh, of a reference, then tell them that um, that uh, what I actually had done was uh, a firm that I was with was shrinking dramatically, one that I was eventually laid off from is that I had to lay off some really good people in a round that was that was earlier before before mine, and what I did was I actually set them up with interviews and with people to talk to, and during the uh, the exit the exit meeting, so to speak, I actually handed him a list of, uh, uh, of people that he could talk to that were people that I knew in the industry that would help that person find a job. That's an extreme, but anything that you can do to make it easier for that person losing their job, particularly in this job market.
1: We have a little less than a minute. of. What would you say the importance of finding a mentor when you're a first-time manager?
5: It's enormously important for a number of reasons, one of which is is that as a new manager, you're going to run across situations that you don't know how to handle. And and there's the fear that if you handle it incorrectly, you may be hurting your own career, you may be hurting the company, or you might be hurting an individual within your group. Proper good advice can not only help you uh, make the right decision at the time, but can also help direct you in your career to a way that would allow you to be most successful. The trick with a mentor is finding one who can truly provide good advice.
1: Well, Eric, you've got 25 years of experience. You've produced this uh this tips and advice for first-time managers, everything from A to Z. Managers mechanics. Tell us how to get your book.
5: Uh the book can be found uh can, is uh, available on Amazon. Uh, as well as BarnesandNoble.com. It can be found uh, on my website, which is www.managermechanics.com. And, of course, it is also available on the iUniverse website.
1: Well, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio.
5: Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on.
1: That was Eric Bloom. He is the author of his book, Manager Mechanics, Tips and Advice for First-Time Managers.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after
4: these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright. The host of The Right Side of the Aisle on Togenet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on Toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book. What gives? Published by Togi Entertainment, the author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book What Gives in this provocative way: We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist' despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio, with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Love Song, and the author is Brent Peters, and Brent joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Brent. Hello, how are you? Now, you love music, don't you?
6: Yes, I do. I'm a big fan.
1: You're a big fan. And so you thought you would take all this love of music and and you also write music. That is correct. Take all this love for music and do it in a unique way with stories behind the music. Is that what we're talking about? Exactly. Why write the book? I mean, it's obviously a lifestyle, but why take the time to write the book?
6: It's been something that I've, I've always wanted to do. I think listening, as much music as I listen to, I kind of, you know, buy a lot of CDs, and every time I buy a CD, uh, a song kind of inspires me. I I get, like, little side stories that I create, because to me, I mean, music is is powerful, and it kind of gets the creative juices flowing. But, yeah, maybe when I was in in college, I, you know, I just had it as an idea. never thought it'd be anything that I would actually put on paper or put in ink. Uh, But always had the idea and, you know, slowly created characters. Uh, all from my love of music, all just from, you know, buying a CD, listening to a new song, and, you know, just kind of letting that song, uh, you know, kind of take me to, like, a, a different world, and which led me to, you know, put those small ideas together and put it together as love song.
1: Because that's what music does. It takes us to a place. Sometimes it takes us to... An event in time, doesn't it? it? helps? It seems to connect up very quickly. You can remember what you were doing or who you were with. Exactly. That's the power of music. Right. So what we're doing here is you've broken your book down into, instead of chapters, there are tracks. Now tell us what that is about.
6: All right. Um, you know, like when you, when you buy a CD, uh, they're broken down into tracks. Uh, each track, you know, tells it. Its own story, um, more or less. With this, it's it's a story, you know, in sequence. You know, it, it talks about the relationship between my characters, uh, Darian and Melody. Also, you know, their um, friendship with others as well, um, and how they relate, you know, and, and you know within within their own world. The, the tracks, because Darian is also a music lover uh, and writes music he kind of relates what he writes in music um, with his relationships and also takes, you know, from his relationship to write music. So each track just kind of uh, tells about a song. Maybe he was inspired to write because of a relationship or is inspired in his relationship uh, because of a song.
1: So each one of these songs, is this because of his relationship with Melody or with others as well?
6: uh mostly with melody uh throughout the different tracks uh he might you know he, he might bring up a old song that he has uh written and uh you know it might make him uh, even remember about someone else he has a, a past relationship with a character named Candace there's a, a track in there where it refers to Candace and so it's not always about Melody but but most of it is and He just kind of tries to relate the two.
1: So it's the story behind the music. Exactly. For example, we have uh, track three. This is, you say, your favorite chapter because it's Darian and Melody's first date. Is that what this is about? And a song that he wrote after their first date?
6: Yes, it is. That chapter um, not only is my favorite, but getting feedback from uh, people who have actually read the book, uh, have mentioned to me that they think that Chapter Three or track three uh, is their favorite as well uh, it's, a, it's a more relaxed chapter, a more uh, fun chapter because they you know they're getting to know each other and uh, they have a perfect date uh, and Darian kind of explains you know in this chapter how he kind of creates like a soundtrack for his, his relationship. With melody, he he refers to that you know mostly in this track um, where he's kind of creating like a soundtrack from music that he's heard and music that he's written. Um, and the, the track three just allows the two characters you know to have a night out on the town and uh, have a lot of fun. Have a, have a lot of you know they, they find out their dreams and you know kind of the things that you know bring them closer together and things that they have in common. And it's just really it's, it's just really a, a A fun track, in 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 my opinion.
1: Now, do you include the lyrics in each one of these uh, track stories?
6: In most of them, um, some tracks uh, might not necessarily have the lyrics um, written out, but a lot of them, a lot of the the tracks do. Uh, A lot of the tracks that don't, um, you know, it's probably something that he is thinking about writing in the future or is trying to gather ideas for but lets you know what this track is about and what he's writing and why he's writing. And in the same track as well, it uh you know, it kinda all comes together because what he's writing about or what he's thinking about writing is more or less happening in, in that at that time.
1: Now, there's also a character named Maurice. Tell us about yeah. Maurice and what kind of tracks he generates.
6: Uh, Maurice is um, more or less he's the character that he, you, know, you kind of love to hate. He, he can be rude. He can be um, funny. He kind of just says what he wants to say, but no one really has a problem with it. You know, He doesn't go overboard. Uh, but he's, he's a fun character. He's Darian's best friend. Um, he brings a lot of the humor to the book, just because he lets things happen, and you know he's he's not one to really hold back. So I allow all the like humor to to mostly go through him, and he he's been another character who uh, others who have read the book have uh, related to as their favorite character or one of their favorite characters. You know, just because you know, with whenever he's mentioned, it's mostly to bring a smile to the reader.
1: Now, is he does he interact with Darian and Melody as well?
6: Uh, He does. He is uh, Darian's roommate and best friend. Um, But besides Darian and Melody, he's probably the most mentioned character in the book. Um, But he kind of, you know, he more or less relates to to Darian and kind of. Gives like a second voice or second opinion for Darian as well.
1: Now, music often, of course, portrays all aspects of life, and there's also, you know, adversity, tragedies. Uh, Do you write about that as well? Yes, I do. Tell us about that.
6: Um, Well, you know, most of the, um, you know, adversity in in the story um, comes from someone's relationship. Um, mostly throughout the, the story, the relationships are between Darian and Melody, um, but he has, you know, uh, friends in, in the story, Ashton and Sasha, who also go through, you know, their hard times in their relationship. He relates a, a track to them as well. You know, it, it, you know sometimes it, it's uh, about about family, uh, you know, the hardships between, you know, uh, one family member and, and another or another friend. Um, and even, you know, the, the love that someone might have for, you know, for doing something. In, in the case of Maurice, uh, he, he shares his love for basketball, and, and it's kind of related, um, you know, in the story as, you know, as well through it, throughout the track. Um, but mostly, the, you know, the adversity comes from uh, a relationship, either a past relationship that Darian, to, Darian has experienced or um, his current relationship with Melody.
1: Usually in love songs, there's something about breaking up with someone, right? Do you have that?
6: Uh, yes, I do. And and the beginning of the book, um, the first track is is Darian explaining. You know, he, he's writing a song, and he's actually writing a song uh, because there's someone on his mind who uh, he was once in a relationship with, and you know he still feels the you know, the the heartache from it. And in this track, he actually is trying to get over uh, this relationship by putting it in a song. And he he basically does so. And then after he, you know, puts it in in words and puts it in a song, not too shortly after is when he meets Melody.
1: Anything about death? You know, that's the very challenging emotion. Do you have anything written about that?
6: Uh, I don't, um, and the reason why is, uh, I mean, I when I read a book, um, you know, it, it death kind of, you know, it, it is it is very sad. Um, I more or less wanted this to be an upbeat book, and although there are sad moments, I didn't want it to be as sad as you know a, a death occurring. Um, I mean, there, there may be. Um, A death mentioned, you know, once from uh, a past in the book. But um, as the story goes on, um, it doesn't really elaborate on um, anyone to death.
1: Now, you choose the setting of Cleveland, Ohio for the the, uh, setting for the book. Now, why did you choose Cleveland?
6: Well, I'm from Cleveland. I grew up in Cleveland, and I love the town of Cleveland. Um, I really wanted a place that... Uh, can give you a sense of, you know, uh, of smell, of of feel, you know, of, of sight. And, um, you know, Cleveland being uh, a city with all four seasons and a, and a season or a place where uh, I know a lot about and can actually, uh, you know, go into detail, uh, that's why I, I, I chose Cleveland. Um, again, I, I love the city. I mean, they have... Uh, a lot of fights, I mean, plus they have the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame there, kind of, uh, you know, it's setting itself kind of relates to the music as well.
1: How many tracks are there?
6: Uh, I believe there are 17. Uh, I also have one that's um, included, but it's titled as if it is a bonus track, Uh, (laughs) the same way that, that you might see, you know, you might purchase a CD, and, you know, it'll tell you that it has 15 tracks, but, you know, you get to the 15th track and you're surprised by a bonus track, so I have that included as well.
1: Tell us a little bit about the bonus one.
6: Uh, the bonus track, uh, it, it kind of elaborates on, um, you know, the, the, uh, the last track in the book, um, where it just kind of tells an after story. Um, After, you know, Darren and, and Melody have, um, you know, gone their, their own way, um, the bonus track kind of gives you a little side story of what happened after their split. There's another, another track that I think that kind of hits home, because, you know, I think a lot of people can't relate, relate to. Um, It's, Track number eight, which is titled, uh, Sugar Coated, um, but it kind of, it explains the relationship between Darian's friend, um, friends and couple, um, Sasha and Ashton. Um, but in this track, they, uh, you know, they, they have difficulty in their relationship and they try to work it out and, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard, um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to work it out, and um, sometimes they, you know, they, even though they're trying their best, uh, you know, it, it hurts, and, and they actually split um, in this track. And um, a lot of it is due to um, Ashton, who is, who is the male, who is uh, Sasha's husband, and, you know, he he kind of takes Sasha for granted, and uh, he realizes, you know, after they split that you know, she's the most important thing to to him, and he works on trying to get him, get her back, and he works on uh, himself, and you know, does everything uh, human possibly, human possible, you know, to to get her back. And I, I, this is another track that, that I like because it it's really the the first track where it actually you know gives you that, that sad emotion or, you know, you, you actually feel for the character because he's expressing a lot of feeling throughout this chapter and throughout the, the rest of the book, for that matter.
1: Now, do the tracks have a certain beat to them in your mind or as we read or is there a certain uh, type of music?
6: Uh, they do. More or less, uh, probably R&B. Um, you know, a lot of it can be um, upbeat. You know, some of it will be uh, mellow. Uh, just like, just like a CD. Uh, I mean, you might, you know, buying a CD, you, you know, you turn from one track and it's, it's a dance song and, you know, the next one is, you know, a ballad. It's kind of more or less the the same way where, you know, throughout most of it, you know, I, I try to make it fun, but then there are those with, you know, there are those certain tracks which are, are ballads and it, it kind of stays at the same beat, you know, throughout each track. You know, the way it starts is, you know, I, I try to all bring it together at the end as well in the same way, with, with the same beat and with the same tune as, as it started.
1: Brent, how do we get your book?
6: Uh, at iUniverse.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com. I am I'm working on a website where you can get it through my website, um, which should be up shortly, and that is Brent-Peters.com.
1: That's Peters with an S. Yes. Brent-Peters.com.
6: Yes. www.brent-peters.com.
1: Well, Brent, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio.
6: I appreciate it.
1: That was Brent Peters. He is the author of his book, Love Song